Welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Joe, And I'm Hannah. And thank you for joining us for the latest episode. This week features highlights from our recent live event. We have the pleasure of hosting Guy Hunter Watts to talk all about walking and trekking in Andalusia, his home for the last 30 years. For the extended live video version with Guy's full presentation and more audience questions, go to the Cicerone website www.cicerone.co.uk forward slash live where you can find the video recording for this and all our other live events. Andalusia offers accessible walking for all types of walkers. Long distance treks such as the GR7 or the Coast to Coast Walk or shorter walks along the coastlines or trails of the region. Guy Hunter Watts has written several guidebooks to Andalusia, having lived and worked in the region since the 1980s. His most recent Cicerone guidebook covers the GR7 trek, part of the incredibly long E4 route. It's surprisingly wild considering the excellent transport links and Guy Hunter Watts is testament to the fact that Andalusia can keep walkers busy and inspired for years decades even so joe you've actually been walking in andalusia haven't you yeah i've done um done a, a few bits and bobs yeah i particularly remember visiting um ronda and it's absolutely incredible you'll always recognize photos of ronda because it's a, a classic spanish mountain town situated above cliff tops and there's this incredible bridge that um, sort of unites the old and the new town spanning these cliffs yeah it's absolutely absolutely amazing but the uh the walking around there is is brilliant too i know that jonathan and leslie the managing directors and owners of cicerone are big into their walking in Andalusia as well. I think they spent one of their birthdays with Guy Hunter Watts walking in Andalusia. I'm sure there is an article on Cicerone Extra. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. I, I also um, spent maybe not some walking time, but some some dinner time with Guy in a restaurant in Ronda. I think this is a thing to really remember about going walking in Spain. Uh, it's no great hardship. The wine's always <laughs> incredible, and the foods um, foods fantastic. And then practically as well, it's it's a really easy place to to get to from the UK. You know, flights to all sorts of uh, Spanish cities are usually very cheap, but it is possible to get there by train relatively uh, effectively. And if you're in Europe, the high-speed trains across from France and then to Madrid and onwards make it really accessible as well. And then getting from those cities into the mountains really doesn't take long. Lots of trains and buses and you can be out there straight away. I think that's one of the benefits from these touristy destinations that everybody knows them for the beaches and you know the going to Spain for the Costa del Sol and all of that but actually as a, a walker you can take advantage of the bargain flights for a tenner but then once you get there avoid the tourist beaches and go off walking but it means that all the infrastructure for getting to that region is is in place and is really good. Yeah that's right and for most of Guy's books you arrive in a Spanish airport and instead of heading towards the coast you turn inland and and head up towards the hills. But there is Guy's uh, coastal walks in Andalusia, but which identifies all sorts of quieter coastal routes as well. So you're not actually going to be fighting the horde on, on the beaches, but, uh, but still getting to enjoy that seaside kind of vibe for walking as well. And presumably if you do his coast to coast, there'd be no shame in having a day at the beach on either end of your walking break. Oh, no, no shame. No shame at all. In fact, I think that many walkers and, and trekkers, uh, you know, we always sort of scorn the beach holiday. But after um, after two or three weeks of long distance walking and uh, and shouldering a heavy bag, it's a quiet secret, but it can be quite nice to just spend a couple of days relaxing on the beach at the end. And that's definitely what you get with the uh, Andalusian coast to coast. 
Yeah, relaxing on the beach slash planning the next walking holiday. Definitely, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, so welcome Guy. Okay, nice to be here tonight. What I wanted to do tonight was just to give a brief overview of walking in Andalusia. Um, I'm going to be concentrating on the, a new Cicerone guide, which is called Trekking the GR7. The first thing to be uh, said about Spain is that it is a very mountainous country. There are very few parts of the peninsula which aren't um, actually mountainous really just the valleys between the different mountain chains. And this is very much the case with Andalusia itself. Really, the only flat piece of land in Andalusia is at the delta, the far western end of the Guadalquivir Valley, uh, which cuts, uh, basically divides the Sierra Morena from the Great Betica range of mountains, which stretch kind of saber-like all the way across uh, Andalusia, down towards Algeciras and Gibraltar and Morocco. And in fact, these are very grandiose mountains, and it's actually in the Sierra Nevada, we have um, southern Spain's highest peak, which is the Mulhathain, which clocks in at 3,479 meters, so pretty high. Tourism to Spain really kicks off in the 1850s when Andalusia becomes like a diversion off the Grand Tour. This is when travel for travel's sake is kicking off. Andalusia was seen as a particularly exotic destination and most of all for its um, great cities and its Moorish legacy. Spain was under Islamic rule for eight centuries and people would make the journey on horseback or by cart to the great mosque of Cordoba built by the um, Umayyad dynasty. They would visit Sevilla and where the great, the famous Giralda Tower, a Christian belfry was put on top of the original Moorish Naret. And probably the highlight of any trip in the 1900s as well was to see the great um, Alhambra complex of palaces, which was built by 21 sultans of the Nazarid dynasty, just at the time when Islamic power in Spain is really waning. All of this really begins to change in the 1960s when Franco um, was reluctantly persuaded to abandon tourism and open the gates to sun, sea and sand tourism. And this is when a lot of the development takes place along the Costa del Sol in Andalusia. This is pretty much the case throughout the 60s, 70s, but in the 80s, things really start to change when Spain becomes a member in 1986 alongside Portugal of the European Economic Community. And at this stage, huge funds start pouring into Spain for rural development. At the same time, this is when a consistent, structured policy of protecting Andalusia's many beautiful, pristine ecosystems by legislation. And this is when we get the creation of Parques Naturales and the doubly protected Parques Nacionales. At the moment, we have something like, I think, 23 natural parks and three national parks. And inland Spain begins to get on the map. Every little village in Andalusia now um, has funding to open small hotels and to mark out hiking trails. But when I first came here, at least, there was very little in the way of waymarking. And I actually turned to local shepherds to find where the paths were. Who better than they to know how to move through the mountains? My first book was uh, Walking in Andalusia, which basically was my selection of the six most beautiful areas with a week of walking in each area. And I'd say that's a really good starting point for anybody wanting to explore Andalusia. 
coastal walks, um, self-explanatory, my own Andalusian coast-to-coast walk, and more recently, a guide to the mountains of Ronda and Grathalema. The areas I chose, Arathena, very beautiful, over near the border of Portugal. My own home area of Ronda, um, very varied. The Alcorno Cales Park, the mountains just behind Nerja, which are stunningly beautiful and very easily accessed from Malaga Airport. Of course, we had to have the Sierra Nevada in the cut and more remote, more difficult to get to the um, natural park of Cazorla. Maybe out of these, if I had to choose, well, surprise, surprise, I go for my home area. This is uh, Grazalema. It's an incredibly diverse um, ecosystem, an incredible, uh, something like a third of all wildflower species are present in Grazalema. And the village itself is a great base for um, one stop or a one-base walking holiday. But it's very rugged terrain, as you can see, um, jagged limestone all around you, but very beautiful. Um, But what I really want to talk about is the new Cicerone guide, which is trekking the GR7 in Andalusia. The GR7 is one of many GR. By the way, GR comes from the French Grande Randonnée or Gran Recorrido in Spanish. And it basically means long distance footpath. And my book is about the Andalusian section of what is the longest walking trail in Europe, the GR7 E4, which was created by the European Ramblers Association in the 1970s, way marked by the Mountaineering Federation of Andalusia. It begins in Tarifa on Spain's Atlantic coast gradually cuts its way through the mountains to somewhere just uh, east of Antequera. And at this point, the trail divides. You've got a northern variant and a southern variant. So talking about that common first section, which is 11 stages, begins on the beach in Tarifa, and a very beautiful beach it is. From Tarifa, you're heading north through the mountains, first entering the natural park of Los Alcornocales, of the Cork Oaks, uh, following tracks, very little tarmac involved in the GR7, footpaths, and at times stunning sections of cobbled medieval footpaths, to the side of which here you can see uh, the Cork Oaks stripped of their bark at the bottom. Heading on north, we pass through the stunning mountain town of Ronda, very much on the tourist trail, um, which could well be worth an extra night. And from Ronda, the trail heads further um, east or on a northeast tack, passing close to the Choro Gorge, where you could divert to walk the recently created Caminito de Rey, or the Walk of the King, because it was inaugurated by King Alfonso the 13th in 1921. At the end of the common stage, you then have a choice. You're either going to take the northern section or the southern section. And I must say, I would find it hard to choose between the two. If you're, first of all, the northern section is going to take you initially for about six or seven days through the vast olive belt, which stretches really from Antequera all the way up and through the province of Jaén. It is monoculture and um, driving through it, it can be exceedingly dull. But the funny thing is, once you're walking through it, it takes on a whole different character. And I was amazed at just how beautiful the northern uh, route of the GR7 proved to be. It takes you past um, beautiful reservoirs and through several villages where almost guaranteed you won't meet any other foreign people. And one of the nice things is on this northern section of the walk, 
you looking south, you sometimes uh, will see the distant Sierra Nevada. Um, as we're heading northeast towards the end of the trail at its eastern end, we pass through the fabulous Sierra de Magina um, Natural Park. Here I had the amazing chance or good luck to uh, be within meters of an imperial eagle, one of the most fantastic um, sightings or wildlife events of my particular odyssey uh, in walking the trail. And then we get as far as Cthulhu. Cthulhu is very dear to my own heart. I started taking walking groups here more than 30 years ago. And the Cthulhu Park, it's a beautiful um, mountain village and the mountains rise up sheer behind uh, Cthulhu. And the GR7 cuts straight through the heart of the Cthulhu Park. And eventually it leads you to Pueblo de Don Fadrique. However, if um, you're feeling slightly more adventurous because it's a slightly longer route, you might choose to walk the southern route. The southern route from Antiquera heads on east and on day two uh, into the southern route, you pick up an old Via Verde, which is um, basically the railway track, which has been converted for walking and cycling. This particular one led from Malaga to the market gardens, which were at Ventus de Zafaraya. Another beautiful section of four or five days takes you on through the Sierra, on, along the northern flank of the Sierras de Tejeda, Almijara and Alama, before we eventually get to what certainly is one of the highlights of the GR7. And that's uh, where the GR7 traverses the southern flanks of the Sierra Nevada. And these are the villages of La Alpujara, the highest villages in Spain. In fact, some of the highest in Europe. For example, the Bubion, which is at something like 1350 meters. But the highest village in the Alpujara, Treveles, is actually at 1600 meters. And it's in these villages where you really do feel the legacy of Spain's Moorish past most, as far as the popular, the vernacular of the architecture goes. Typically, um, the, the houses are flat flat roofed and um, the other great legacy of the moors are the water channels which bring water from the melt water from the high sierra nevada down to irrigate the terraces surrounding these villages some of these um, water channels run for 10 12 15 kilometers and they are absolute masterpieces of engineering and monuments to human endeavor once we um, get to the far eastern end of these villages, a challenging day leads up and over the very high pass of La Ragua. La Ragua is just over 2,000 meters. And on this day, you're climbing 1,000 meters. And it's a long, tough climb. But that's there are a number of challenging days on the trail, which is one of the reasons I love it. Before dropping out of the Sierra, you then traverse the huge plain, constantly changing scenery on this walk, heading for the distant Sierra de Baza. Here, the scenery is beginning to get rather drier because now we've lost the influence of the Atlantic weather systems at this side of Andalusia. And you start to enter semi-desert type terrain, 
Very interesting part of the tour. This is one of the areas of Europe where, you know, the presence of man has been pushed back the furthest. Interestingly, um, the Ruta Frances of the Camino de Santiago clocks in at about 800 kilometers. And the northern version of the GR7 is about 740. And the southern version that's taken together with the common section clocks in at about 780. So if you were thinking, if you have the luxury of taking time out and are thinking of hiking the whole trail or one variant of it, you'll need between five and six weeks to comfortably cover the ground. And um, that's it. One thing I would say is just as a, in, in conclusion, I walked the trail in 2019 and times I was walking in winter, maybe a little during the summer when not too many people are around. But in the whole way, in a total of 1,002 hundred and something kilometers, I reckon I met about 20 walkers. So that gives you some idea of just how wild a trail it can feel in parts. That was fantastic. Thank you, Guy. It was really interesting. We're offering viewers a special discount on any of Guy's guidebooks, including the upcoming GR7 book. Just use the code ANDALUCIA25 at the checkout to get 25% off. You can find full details of Guy's books on the Cicerone website, www.cicerone.co.uk. He's also written a number of articles for us, so it's worth having a little time exploring the site. Apart from his guidebooks, there are over 75 search results for Spain, including podcasts, previous live events, videos and articles. So we have got tons of questions. A quick one from me. I've seen the the Caminito del Rey and it looks like it's completely horrific. Have you ever done it? And is it as terrifying as it looks? Um, well, yes, I did do it. And I walked the Caminito a number of times before it was restored. So I'm, um, without being too nostalgic, it was terrifying. And interestingly, I was just looking at an article on it. Before it was restored, six people actually died um, on the Caminito um, from falling because there were huge sections of it which just weren't there. So um, before it was restored, you needed ropes. It was gated off at either end. And in those days, it was a terrifying experience. Nowadays, they what they did, in fact, was built a second walkway above the original extremely damaged walkway. And um, it's got a high fence on one side. And you walk it in groups with a monitor with proper helmets. And so unless you suffer from vertigo, I would say absolutely not. It wouldn't be a terrifying experience. But it is a mighty impressive gorge. And it really would be worth if you can take the time out to book a tour. But it's something, it's become one of Malaga provinces and even one of Andalusia's most popular tourist visits. And it gets booked up months, uh, months ahead. So if you are thinking of booking on, you should really do it well before you come to do your GR7 walk. I, I think that's probably a, a no from, from me, to be honest. But it, it's good to hear that it's been improved. We have another question about something potentially scary. How how are the sheepdogs in Andalusia? Sometimes they can be a bit of a problem. Yeah, OK. It, it's interesting because I know just um, having um, walked so much with groups here in Andalusia, how very frightening it can be when a dog, when you're approaching a remote farm and a dog begins to snarl at you. Now, in all my years of walking in Andalusia, I've seen a lot of dogs and I've never seen anybody bitten badly by a dog. I've seen many people frightened by dogs and I'm not advising 
any of your uh, listeners or walkers to do this. But every time I come across or a, a dog comes running up to me and starts to snarl, I walk slowly at the dog uh, with my hand out. And generally speaking, in many cases, the dog simply rolls over on his back and adopts the submissive position. I'm not saying that everybody um, would want uh, to do that, of course, but nearly all of the dogs at farms are on chains, sadly, um, often only fed dry crusts of bread or behind fences. But getting back to what I said originally, I, I really have not personally witnessed anybody ever being bitten by a dog on one of my walks. Okay, well, that's that's good to know also. We've got a couple of people asking when's best to walk the GR7. In particular, when are you likely to avoid the snow and how early in the spring can you do the GR7? Okay, so firstly, the snow is really only going to be an issue on the section which leads you around the south side of the Sierra Nevada. So there, definitely the advice would be to avoid the winter months. And Cathola, further to the northeast of the Sierra Nevada, uh, Cathola can also um, get heavy snow. So Cathola and Granada, which are both kind of at the tail end of the walk, they are best avoided during the winter months. Otherwise, Andalusia is definitely a, a very good three-season walking destination. I have often taken groups at Christmas and out of 14 days of walking, maybe we've had 12, 13 days of sunshine. You never know, so it's always a question of packing for all seasons. Um, springtime, of course, is like anywhere really in Southern Europe. From mid-April through to mid-May is the optimum time to be wa- walking here because the spring flowers here are simply extraordinary. It's a complete explosion every springtime. But you never know in Andalusia, any time between September and mid-May, you may get rain. So you can never guarantee that it's going to be dry. But it's certainly temperature wise it's very comfortable for walking but um, really more important than the months to choose I would say are the two months to avoid almost at all costs which are July and August because that time of year temperatures can regularly get into the 36 37 38 even sometimes pushing 40 degrees and for a lot of people um, that really is just too hot for comfortable walking and it does help, of course, you know, the sun is up early, so you can set off early in the day. There's only one place where you can walk on the route, I would say comfortably, which is the southern side of the Sierra Nevada. Avoid it in the winter, but here you really can walk comfortably during the summer months. And just a point on English being spoken, actually, you say in one of your guidebooks that it's not necessarily widely spoken everywhere. And you do encourage people to learn a few phrases. Um, That that is very true, Hannah. Um, In fact, I'd say it's the exception rather than the norm. Even at hotels, um, remember, the GR7 takes you quite well off the beaten track. So if if you were thinking about... um, checking into a hotel in Nerja or somewhere along the Costa del Sol, Ronda, Granada, Cordoba, these are tourist destinations. Yes, you probably would expect your receptionist to um, be able to speak English. But in many, many places, no, hardly a word. So a little Spanish really goes a long way. So I, I would recommend um, having um, a little phrase book with you. Or, of course, um, nowadays you've got 
pretty clever apps which you can speak into and the words appear <laughs> yeah i think i mean i think it's good practice anyway isn't it to wherever you are try and learn how to say please and thank you and order a beer or a coffee or whatever um, I think it's it's a nice thing to do anyway. But especially when you're getting a bit more off the beaten track. I mean, one of the reasons why so many people love doing these more remote trips is because it's a it's a really good way to see into the true heart of a, a region or a country by walking through it. You don't get that touristy experience so much. But that does then also mean that the facilities maybe are not as built up around tourists as well. Absolutely. And really, uh, many of the villages through which you pass, probably um, if you are hiking the GR7, you won't see another foreigner. They really are quite off piece, some of these villages. But uh, definitely um, a little bit of Spanish. The Spanish are always incredibly hospitable and welcoming people, and they will do their very best to um, try to understand you. Yeah, a smile and a couple of words goes goes a long way, I think, in communication. Um, we have a question from Inbar about wild camping. Is that permitted yeah. along the GR7? Um, maybe you shouldn't quote me on this. In my experience of camping in Spain, I have never been told to move a tent, even when I've been, and I've camped pretty much everywhere. I'd say it's, um, and what, what a lot of the time, as you approach the villages along the way, you're actually leaving the boundaries of the national park. So with, once you're within a couple of kilometers of the village, you're maybe coming out of the forest and you're beginning to get into more cultivated areas surrounding the villages, fields, etc. And in my experience, nobody will hardly ever object if you were to pitch up, pitch a tent there. Or if you pass a little farm, uh, a couple of kilometers from the village you're walking to, why not just ask the, the farmer, would you mind if I just put my tent in the corner of your field for tonight? And I would say 19 out of 20 times, maybe even 20 out of 20, people would say, yeah, go ahead. Um, I can't say here that um, you should camp in a national park. Um, the the anti-camping laws, what we have to remember, are really um, kind of drawn up with irresponsible people in mind because of, in Spain, especially because of the risk of fire, which obviously in, in summer and the early autumn is, is really um, a great danger. So um, although you should shouldn't camp in the parks a lot of them are so remote and if you were just to turn off the trail and hike five minutes up the hill but i'm sure you would rather me not uh, <laughs> suggest uh, breaking any laws but certainly close to the villages no problem at all what should be said on the question of camping is um, there are very few campsites along the gr7 I would say out of the, let's say, about 75 villages through which the route passes, maybe more like 100, um, from memory, probably about 10 have campsites. And one thing about the campsites is also, um, even if you're not planning to camp and you're looking for just overnight accommodation, a lot of the campsites have little cottages, those which do exist in Andalusia, nearly all of them, in fact, have little cottages and log cabins, etc., And it can be a really good place to put up for the night because they nearly all have laundry facilities as well. And of course, if you're on a long, um, you've been on the trail for a week or so, coming across a washing machine uh, to be able to um, do a wash can be a really um, nice bonus. Speaking of, of washing and water, what's the drinking water availability like along the trail? Um 
varies a great deal. For example, in the Alpujara, you've got meltwater everywhere. Every village has maybe five or six springs. Um, every village, of course, has drinking water and will have some kind of point, um, a tap. Or if it doesn't actually have a spring, um, it's certainly easy enough to fill up. It will be chlorinated water, of course, in villages. By law, every village, of course, has to have its water treated. Um, so personally, I much prefer to um, fill up at springs. But there are some legs where you might be on the trail for something like 20 kilometers um, without coming across water, in which case, obviously, it would make sense to carry as much as possible. Generally speaking, I, in my walking guides, I recommend that people, when they go out on one of my day walks, should take at least two liters of water with them. I mean, that sounds um, an awful lot, but I'd say the main walking in close to the Mediterranean during the warmer months, the biggest uh, threat uh, or danger rather is dehydration. So never skimp on the water when you're heading out. Right. Very, very quickly. Um, We did see the incredible griffon vultures in your video. Are there any other wild animals that you might see in Andalusia? Um, Wild animals... Generally speaking, I always say that Andalusia is better for birds than mammals. Um, What mammals will you expect to see somewhere along the GR7? Certainly plenty of ibex, possibly badger, foxes, red roe deer. Egyptian mongoose are a common uh, sighting. People sometimes, uh, because of their sort of long, um, low uh, body and long tail, they sometimes get mistaken um, for otters. Um, fantastic range of butterflies here. If we're just going into more into the whole um, fauna gig, butterflies, um, I know people who bring butterfly tours here. Lots and lots of um, insects, of course. Um, quite a few snakes. You should expect to see snakes, but um, they'll always get out of the way of you long before you get out of the way of them. Uh, Andalusia does have um, a poisonous snake, the Latastes viper. But really, um, if I can just uh, say um, how wonderful the bird life is. If you're into ornithology, Andalusia really is the place. We, we tend to think, first of all, about the um, big birds. And we've got a huge colonies of um, many, many colonies of griffin vultures, Egyptian vultures, lammergeiers. We've got short-booted golden eagles. Um, We've got this Spanish imperial eagle that we mentioned. And um, in general, it's um, Andalusia is one of the best birding destinations in Europe. You've got the wetland reserve at the far end of the uh, Rio Guadalquivir, where hundreds of thousands of birds winter. And we are on the main migration route between Europe and Africa. So the spring and the autumn passages are one of the most extraordinary wildlife events that you can see uh, when the honey buzzard migration is on. And you see it's almost, um, well, it's it's simply mind-boggling. Brilliant. Um, so... Wow, that just went by in an absolute flash. It's been it's been really good fun. Um, if you're in Andalusia, there's a good chance you'll bump into Guy on the trails. That was Guy Hunter-Watts sharing his thoughts on hiking and trekking in Spain's Andalusia region. Thanks again to Guy for coming on. And thanks to you for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. We hope you found it as inspiring as we did. You can find out about our upcoming monthly Cicerone live events at cicerone.co.uk forward slash live. Keep up to date with the podcast by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform or on the Cicerone website, cicerone.co.uk forward slash podcast. 
Let us know what you think by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by emailing us at live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. As this podcast is fortnightly, we'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, search for Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all our latest news. You can also join our Facebook community group, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. There are plenty of articles on our website, cicerone.co.uk, where you can also check out our full range of titles and sign up to our newsletter. We hope you enjoy listening to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, and that you are inspired to set out and explore the outdoors. We'll see you soon.